Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Uh, good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. And I'm getting uh, feedback in here. Just a moment. All right. There we go. That should stop everything up. Okay. Uh, this is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have, uh, also known as Younger Baldy. On the line with me, I have Elder Baldy, Jeff McClure. Are you there, sir? I believe I am, sir. All right. This is the first week we've been live on the air instead of dead on the air or recorded on the air for a couple of weeks. Um, so we're back, and fall has begun. Um, do, you know, the English think it's really silly that we call it fall. The English think a lot of things are really silly. They are convinced it's autumn. Well, what language do we speak anyway? Oh. American. American. That's right. American. So we, we talk good American. Yeah, and we can tell them it is autumn. What are you talking about? Fall, too? And not more, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. That's right. Therefore, what we say must be right. Democracy for the English language. But you have to be careful that the Australians don't have their um, population explode, or then we'll all be saying mate. Well, if they all explode, they won't be there no more. That's true. That is that is very great logic there, sir. Thank you. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. So this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and not only is the Personal Wealth Coach a radio program, in case you hadn't guessed, just just side note. We also have a podcast going, but we're uh, primarily, when we're not on the air, we, uh, the Personal Wealth Coach is a investment advisory firm registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What does that mean? It means that's the SEC is the regulatory authority. They haven't approved anything by saying we're registered with them. We tell you that every week because it's important that you know who you need to complain to if we say something absolutely absurd. Wait, I mean absolutely absurd and damaging. We say a lot of absolutely absurd things. Uh, you want to say the next disclosure? Well, the thing is that we don't pay for this radio program. That's true. So this is not an infomercial. Um, we do pay for advertising on KTEM, uh, but I defer there's no official quid pro quo there. Uh, but the advertising on the radio program that we pay, the, on the radio station that we pay for is for the radio program. So how do you figure that? I don't, I don't really know. Um, it's kind of a partnership between us and Town Square and KTM saying, let's get this out to people. Um, all right. So what else? Uh, the stuff that we say on here when we're talking to you on this radio program, when, when we talk. It is for educational purposes. What does that mean? It means that we're trying to open up the, the blinds in that smoke-filled dark room in Wall Street and let you guys know what the economy is doing. What does it mean? This is not advice. We don't give advice on the air. Investment advice is something we do off the air as fiduciaries. And there's a very clear definition. When we give investment advice, it must be in the best interest of the person that's receiving it. And we don't know all of you. So if somebody we calls don't. in, uh, I don't think so. Well, maybe we do. If we have three well, listeners, we might. I'm not sure we have that many listeners. Um, I'm not listening. I don't know about you. I'm just saying. I, I, I don't mind. And I've never minded well. Um, I can tell you because I'm your father. Right. So in investment advice takes into account all the goals and risk tolerances and uh, long-term objectives and even the personality of the person the advice is being given to. When we're talking education, it's more of a structure, a logic tree, if you will, on how to make decisions and uh, where to get information. Did that cover that well, you think? That sounds pretty good. Do you have any more? disclosures you want to throw in there about deeming uh, and stuff? Well, the information that we present on this radio program in an educational format, which is not investment advice. I already said been, that. You're going to say it again because it's a disclosure? Just, just, just wait a minute. I'm doing a formal disclosure oh, here. Just relax. Just just, relax. Let's get formal. Hold on. Let me get my tie. Hold on. Um, 
Your information we present on this radio program, although not investment advice and educational in nature, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the completeness or accuracy of said information. Warranty, guarantee, cool. completeness, ac- completeness, accuracy, deem. All words that are used Got all of them. almost never in the English language unless you start saying it in a monotone. Unless you're a lawyer. Yeah. Um, all that means is that the data that we're quoting to you, we believe it is correct, and it has come from usually correct sources. There are no absolutely correct sources ever. I wish there was, but if there was, almost by definition, it would stop. So there. There it goes. Um, and we already, we're going to cover the market next, if, if you don't mind, but we already have questions waiting for us. Somebody's emailing in questions early today. Well, you can send us questions. We're I, I'm tying up the sole telephone line that we can use on KTEM. They used to have two lines that we could use, but they're missing a cable. And because they're missing the cable, we can only use one line. And it, we're, we should be taking up a collection for the cable, except the cable doesn't exist, which is, by the way, a story I want to talk about while we're talking today. A cable, uh, cable story? It, about pieces of equipment that we can't that can't be found. Um, oh, it's apparently going on across the economy, and it's affecting people. Uh, have you been anyway. in my house lately? There's a lot of equipment that can't be found in there. Sunglasses, yeah. phones, keys. Um, but I'm losing track of what I'm trying to was going to talk about now. I totally forgot it. Uh, uh, what's going on in the economy when people are losing track of equipment? No, that was a sub- another subject. But anyway. Oh. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Let's talk about the market. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. We need to give out our email addresses. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. You can email us at either jake at tpwc.com or jeff at tpwc.com during the radio program, and we will attempt to answer your questions or deal with your comments on the air. We already have – well, I already got one in anyway. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's probably the same one. I would suspect. Um what happened in the market this week? Well, the market was there. It was on 44 Wall Street and other places, and the S&P 500 was, had approximately 500 stocks in it, and that's what happened this week. Awesome. No, yeah, that was actually, it. That's all. It things. The S&P 500 stock index, and by that we refer to several versions of the S&P 500 stock index, believe it or not, but there's a symbol called SPX that represents the one we're referring to here, was down 0.63% for the week. It's down about 8% from its recent high at the beginning of September. Now, what does that mean? Uh, In the beginning of September, it hit an all-time record high in the middle of a recession. And um, then it started bleeding off. And it was on Thursday morning, it was down 10%, which makes it technically a correction but we don't count it as a correction unless it closes that price. didn't close at that price. But after being down 10%, it struggled back for the rest of Thursday and Friday and closed down 8% from its top. Um, so it's still positive year-to-date, but it's just about 2%. In other words, the S&P 500 is up about 2% since January 1st. Um, but there's a big shift going on internally in the S&P 500 as people leave the very high-flying tech stocks, and nobody really understands why at this point. This, like nobody, to the best of my ability, have been able that I've been able to find, understands why we have a record high S and P 500 in the middle of a recession with the economy down about 20 percent. So, anyway, the median stock in the index, by the way, is down about 20 percent, which makes sense um, because that's about how far the economy is down. There's about five or ten stocks that are driving the S and P 500 to record highs. And they're basically running the show. Very, very similarly to the way things happened in late 1999 and 2000. And as one writer that I read this week stated, we all know how these things turn out, and it isn't pleasant. Uh, The price-to-earnings ratio of the top stocks, the the largest stocks in the S&P 500 that are driving the index, that did drive the index to a record high at the beginning of this month, are so elevated that there is just no rational way that anything could grow to the point that it would make sense given the price-to-earnings ratio. For example, Amazon, 
basically would have to become the sole supplier for the United States for everything to make sense out of the price-earnings ratio. It would also have to be very, very dominant in Africa and lots of places where the UPS and Amazon don't deliver. So it's it's somebody it's basically priced for perfection for 20 years from now, and I don't think it's going to be the largest company in the world 20 years from now because the largest company 20 years in the past is no longer the largest company. As a matter of fact, many of the largest companies 20 years past don't even exist anymore. That's the way things happen. Yeah, and that's that's normal in in the market. It's normal in any economy as as new technology takes over. Old technology companies disappear, and this is a quick example of that. Coal, during the Trump administration, coal has continued to wane, not because of some overregulation of coal, but because natural gas is cheaper. Uh, and we can look at, hey, it's the EPA that's putting coal out of business, but the reality is, no, coal is putting coal out of business because natural gas is cheaper. Solar panel panels are getting cheaper. Wind is getting cheaper coal is still the same price. And it's part of the reason why it's expensive is because you have to clean up and you can say, well, that's the EPA. But the reality is we don't like acid rain. I don't like my umbrella to fall apart. Well, there's another record that was, there's another historical landmark that occurred last month. And that was that for the first time, renewable energy usage in the United States exceeded the usage of coal. That's correct. And that that's a big plus. And By the way, the leading the leading growth for growth, the leading state in the United States for renewable energy. Let me take a guess. I'm gonna can I guess? Yes. Texas. Yes. Uh, not, not just Cal- for, not just growth, but overall. So we've got the most renewable energies and the most growth in renewable energies because it's profitable now. <laughs> we have we have a lot of space out there. In West Texas, that not much is being done with, and it's good for solar panels. And we have steady wind that used to drive me crazy when I was a kid. In West Texas, all the way up through Oklahoma, in the summertime, it just blows all the time from the south. So we can put big wind turbines up all over the place. And all along they, the coast. Yeah. They may be ugly, but they are very efficient when it comes to producing energy. My kids don't think they're ugly. Uh, we'll drive, we, this is the reason why we were off the air the last couple of weeks and we played recordings instead is the wind turbines uh wind turbines i was visiting wind turbines down in south texas went down to south padre island and every time a new horde of wind turbines turbines appeared on the horizons uh both of my kids would start pointing and talking and calling them giants and watching them wave their arms around and they thought it was great. I, that may be harder if you're living right next to them, but they're pretty cool when you're driving through them. I kind of like the way West Texas used to look. Me too. Me big, too. empty like it was in the 1800s. Not much changed, but times change and energy changes. And Would you like a Lance and a, a knackered old pony, and you may tilt at these windmills if you wish? Well, it'd take a long Lance to reach them, but Very uh, I more like a thirty thirty or forty caliber repeater. No, and a horse would be closer to it, and a cowboy hat. Oh yeah, because you're like recreating the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah, totally understand. Anyway, let's talk about the other side of the market, the other sides of the market. The yield on the benchmark ten-year U.S. Treasury fell about six percent to zero point six five eight percent. Again, so that suggesting some near-term pessimism in the bond market. Yield curve remains distinctly positive. Now, let's talk about this. There has been a massive move since the market peaked out of stocks and into bonds and gold, which is jumping from the frying pan into the fire, in our opinion. One of the things that I think anyone who's listening needs to understand, if you're not listening, you don't need to understand Yeah, it. Yeah, just, just stop listening if you're not listening. All right. And that is that interest rates are at record lows, and they're hovering at record lows. They're not They're not going to stay at record lows forever. Um, sometime, I would think, as soon as two years from now, inflation should get back around 2%. The Federal Reserve is working really hard to pump inflation up to 2%, and I think they're going to be successful. They've stated again and again and again 
that they're going to let it run above 2%, so it may get up to 25 or 3%, and they'd be perfectly happy with that because they're looking at long-term averages. If that happens, bond rates, by definition, will rise to where they are roughly some level above inflation. Once this recession is over, bond rates are going to rise to the point where they're above recession, I mean, above inflation, because bondholders, when they're not panicked and thinking everything is going to fail, want to buy something that actually yields them a net profit after inflation. Now, that's shocking, I know, that people actually want to make a profit these days. So let's just say we had 2% inflation, which is what the Fed is shooting for and which and they believe they're going to be able to achieve within two years. That means that, at a minimum, the 10-year Treasury note from the from the federal government would be yielding about 2.6% at this point. What does that do to people who bought Treasuries at 0.6% or bought municipal bonds or bought whatever they bought? You're going to see a dramatic decline in the value in the, of those securities, and people are going to look around and realize that they can get a higher interest rate from CDs two years from now than they'll be able to get than they're able to get from the bonds they bought at the depth of the depression. Uh, or no, depression recession. The recession. Yeah, it would just throw this out there: is that a lot of these companies, municipalities, and governments, if you wait till maturity, you're going to get paid. Now, that's not true with all of them. I mean, you've got to look at the risks involved when you're buying these things. But in the meantime, between now and however long you have to maturity, if you want to sell the thing, usually you would go to the market and you would say, hey, I would like to sell this bond. When interest rates go up, that bond is going to be worth less because it has a very low interest rate. If you're buying a new bond in two years and you have a choice between a 2% bond and a 0.6% bond, which one are you going to want? It's kind of the same choice when you're looking at a bank account. Well, obviously, uh, if you're thinking about it, you would want to have a higher interest rate, which causes the value of that low interest rate bond to drop on the open market. It'll still, uh, technically, it's still set to mature for the same price, but you have to wait a long time to get it. So the value drops because it has a lower interest rate. Nobody wants that low interest rate. And it generally will fall to the point where the value of that bond is paying out a 2% interest rate. How does it do that? Well, you have to drop a lot to go from a 0.6% interest rate to a 2% interest rate on the, on the value of that. And that's that's the thing that we warn people about. There's no risk in a U.S. government bond if you hold it to maturity. Well, there's inflation risk. Well, there's inflation. Well, when I say no risk, there's no risk of default. The government's going to give you the money. You may not get back enough money to keep up with inflation, but as far as getting your whole money back, the government's going to pay you. That's in the Constitution. Um, When it comes down to uh, whether or not you made a profit, that's a different story. And if you sell it to someone other than the government, you may not make a profit. And we're just saying that there's other risks involved rather than just the maturity risk. All right. I think we hit that one pretty well. Uh, let, you well wanna... we hit it pretty well, but let's, let's talk about it in dollars for a second, because I okay. think it's really important. If you put $100,000 today in a 10-year treasury, which is the benchmark for the entire treasury market, and it's also a benchmark for other markets, you're going to get $52.50 a month from your $100,000, which is not too impressive. You put a hundred thousand dollars. Let's just say we wait out for another two years, and and inflation goes to two percent, and this making a shot in the dark at what the the treasury uh, security is paying. Then I think, by the way, it'll pay a lot more than this. But let's just say it's paying two point six three percent at that point. You get two hundred nineteen dollars a month if you break it into monthly interest that you get from your treasury. As opposed to 52. Well, when you and let's just say banks are paying at that point three uh, percent, which is a pretty normal relationship. Uh, so banks are paying three percent. You can go to the bank 
and get $250 a month for your $100,000 that you've got in your treasury security. And you say, shoot, I'm going to sell my treasury security, put the money in the bank, and put, instead of getting $52 a month, I'll get $250 a month. When you go to sell that treasury security, if we get the kind of change I just talked about, an, an interest rate change from 0.6 to 2.6, which is very highly probable, not certain, nothing certain about the future, you would probably get about $50,000 back for your $100,000 bond. That's the market value probably because of this huge differential in interest rates that happens at this point. So it's and the same thing is true whether you're talking about municipals or if you're talking about corporate bonds. If interest rates go up 2%, which is, starting where they are today. Which is not at all unreasonable over a period of time. You're going to, the burn will be amazingly, uh, amazingly huge. And the other thing is we're getting a lot of warnings about municipals. Uh, municipals are generally considered pretty safe if they're full faith and credit of the municipality, particularly in Texas. It's backed by the state of Texas. But once we start to see municipal defaults, and we're going, I'm confident, barring a major change. Now, if the Democrats sweep and get the Senate and the and the presidency and the and the and they keep the house, then we'll get some aid to municipalities, and we won't see we will probably won't see a lot of municipal bond defaults. But if the Republicans retain anything, any power in government at all, they have been blocking aid to states and and municipalities because the ones that are in worse shape are generally Democrat. Once they start failing, people get scared, whether it's Texas or not. Even though Texas backs its municipal full faith and credit bonds. This is kind of market panic territory, and what that means is that even the good ones go down. And this is something that partisan politics really shouldn't be in the economy. Um, this, but it is. Yeah, but it is. So just be aware that just because the ones that need it the most are Democrats doesn't mean that damage won't occur to Republicans in the middle of this. We're all Americans. And so what we, what you're likely to see, and I, this is one of those things where, again, there's no certainty, but I'll assure you of one thing, and that is interest rates can't go down very much. The Federal Reserve has, has asserted very firmly, and with good cause, I want to add, that they're not going to go to negative interest rates. They're effectively at negative interest rates now because if they expect 2% inflation and the 10-year Treasury is only yielding for the next 10 years 0.6, you bought it today with, let's say, you put $100,000 into this 10-year Treasury and you're getting your $50 a month. They are not going to lower it to negative rates. I it's agree with that. It's not gonna... you, won't get, you won't get massive appreciation simply because you've got 0.6%. That is now, correct. The, the bond market has been in a boom, a huge bull bond market since the pandemic began, which is why people are buying bonds, because they've risen in value dramatically. Why? The Treasury interest rates, which, again, are the benchmark for all the other interest rates, the 10-year Treasury benchmarks, are down 34, something like 34% from the beginning of the year. That means a huge rise in the value of the underlying bonds, and people look at that, and brokers look at that, and they think, what a deal. It's going up. It's Let's high. Let's get more. It's high. I want to buy it. Unfortunately, buying high equates later to selling low in most cases. Right. So what we're saying is that the bond market is in a bubble, and there's parts of the stock market that are still overpriced. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a big chunk of it, of that overpriced that's been knocked out over the past uh, about three and a half weeks. Uh, but it's still overpriced. Uh, it, the tech stocks are the ones that have taken it the most. And there's a big chunk of the market that's still underpriced. So yeah, that's a big deal. The value side of the market is down about 13% from the beginning of the year. 13 to 15%, depending on which part of it you look at. And that part of the market is now fairly to underpriced and is a, is a good place to be, in our opinion, just as it was in 2000. It's unpopular. That's why it's down. But it, and, and it, there may be a dip. I will almost certainly say there will be a correction at some point, and it will affect the whole market. But what part will come back first, as it did after the 2008-2009 uh, Great Recession, will be the value side, in yep. our opinion. Right. 
Uh, there's other stuff, and we can cover this strangeness in the economy. I've got some other interesting stats on just inside Texas, which is it's a pretty good representation of other parts of the country as well. Uh, but I want to get to these questions that uh, we've got another one that's come in. Uh, but I'm going to read the, the email. There's an assumption in here. We'll take it apart. Uh, and then we'll just go with the premise even after we take it apart. Um, so here's the assumption. After an exhaustive investigation, this is, this is not, this is, this is purely hypothetical. Let me repeat that. This is a hypothetical situation. Um, email says, after an exhaustive investigative study, China has proven to be the source of COVID-19 and attempted to cover it up. All the world countries affected by COVID-19 sue China for economic damages and win in the world court for lots of money. Uh, and there's a settlement similar to what Germany agreed to pay for in World War I and World War II. Question, with China holding approximately 20% of U.S. debt held by foreign countries, if they liquidated it all to pay down the damages, what would the economic damages to the U.S. be? All right, let me address point by point. So let's assume... Um, this is true, but I'll kind of break this apart. Um, there's, if, are you familiar with, the, you're, you're familiar with the, the nine dash line, which is the, the attempt by China to claim the South China Sea. They were sued in the world court by the Philippines and by Vietnam and by Korea and by a lot of other people. And they've lost. 2017 was the most recent lose by China there. They just ignored it. They don't care. It's a U.N. court. It's in The Hague. It's not like there's a whole lot of authority there. What is, what is the U.N. going to do? They're going to send some blue helmets out into the ocean? Um, who's going to people the blue helmets? Uh, it's going to be France against China? No. <laughs> so let's take that part of the argument means that China wouldn't pay. But let's just assume that they get damages and they decide to pay. If it's like Germany in World War One after World War One and World War Two, it means that they just lost a major war. We just, we're, we're occupying China. Right. We we, invade, we've occupied. Yeah, we've got divisions in Beijing, which doesn't make sense because there's just no way we could, you know, the whole land war in Asia concept. We could not take China. Uh, there, there'd just be no way to do that. Uh, they could not take us. There'd be no way to do that. It would have to be annihilation. It'd be like us invading Russia and taking it. It, it simply wouldn't work. Um, so let's, let's, take a step back and say, all right, let's say it happened anyway. So here's the question. With China holding approximately 20% of U.S. debt held by foreign countries, pause just a moment, pausing this because uh, the reality is that China is not the number one foreign holder of U.S. debt anymore. China holds uh, about one, a little over $1 trillion in U.S. debt, which sounds like a lot, but Japan holds about $1.3 trillion. Last year at this time, they had both held about $1.1 trillion. But the, the issue here is that total debt held by foreign countries is about $7 trillion. So they hold $1 trillion of a $7 trillion foreign debt. Well, wait a minute, what is the size of the debt that held, held by the public, and that includes foreign nations, so we're not going to do intra-governmental holdings. That's within the United States, like for Social Security and for Medicare. Our debt is about $21 trillion right now. The amount that they hold is, is about a third of the CARES package. One bill was three times the debt that the Chinese held. So let's just say they have a lot less push on the supply of U.S. government bonds. If they decided to dump them all at once, they would get about 50% of the value that they hold currently. They don't want to do that. If they decided to dump them all at once, what would happen is the question. It would devastate the Chinese economy. It would crater the Chinese economy to the point that it couldn't function anymore because they have to use dollars to buy the raw materials they use to run their economy. It would cause a total economic collapse of China. Right. That would not be good. No, uh, they've they've got nation stretch. Say that again, but please. Negligible effect on the United States. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, in I, fact, the 
the, the, the thing I mentioned a few minutes ago with the interest rates going from 0.6 to 2 is probably an order of magnitude greater effect upon the uh, upon the United States than anything China could do. Right. And and this is true when we're talking about the presidential election as well. Um, if 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 the president is reelected, if the former vice president is elected, people are really concerned about the economic issues going forward. And I have to tell you that I've read the Biden tax plan, and in order to get it passed, he would have to have Congress pass it first so that he could sign it, and they would have to make no changes to it, which is a little bit ludicrous. But the tax impact of that new plan would mostly affect people with incomes above 400000 and the overall impact to the economy would be about one one-hundredth of the effect of getting a vaccine for the coronavirus. So if you're concerned about Biden be elected, being elected or about Trump being reelected, uh, I've been saying to clients that are on both sides of the political spectrum, the economic recovery has a head of steam going. All we're waiting for is a vaccine. It'd be nice to know who the president is, and there's all kinds of other issues to be voting on. But the economy, it, it's, and this we say this almost every presidential election, it takes a long time for the economy to respond to a presidential action. Go ahead. Moody's Analytics, and they, who is, and they are notoriously non-political in any stretch by any stretch of the imagination. Moody's Analytics has run an analysis of what would happen if the Democrats did. A, well, actually, they ran four analyses: one with the Demo, with various outcomes for the election. Uh, one with the Democrats sweeping Congress and the presidency, one with him just getting the presidency, one with just getting the Senate, and so on. But let's just take the the most extreme example. They ran an analysis if the Democrats did a complete sweep, and they were able to get everything in the Biden proposal, economic proposal passed, both the spending and the tax bill, versus what they've been able to figure out that President Trump wants. Their guess is on President Trump is that he just wants to continue to do more of what he's been doing. And he's talked of taking some of his tweets and so on, but he doesn't have a formal proposal. Right. But they ran them side by side. Interesting result, and it is backed by, without them actually citing history, it's still backed by history. And that is, under a Biden presidency, if there was a full sweep and everything he said were to pass, the United States economy would recover much quicker and much more fully, much more healthily under the Biden plan because he plans to spend a lot of money on infrastructure, which is going to create a tremendous amount of jobs. And no. there's just a long list of things. Now, the long term is that would mean more debt and that would have would. to get paid back. And he doesn't really have a plan for that. So short term recovery is the only difference. Well, his the plan for that, they assumed, would be much higher taxes on upper income people. Mm -hmm. But as Jake pointed out, upper income people don't spend most of their money. They Put it away. They save. It's one of the reasons interest rates are low. And if the they get hit by taxes, they historically do not change their spending patterns. The fact right. that they have to pay more taxes means they put less money in the bank and they put less money in in money market funds. Right. And uh, now hitting higher taxes. Now, if anybody came along and taxed low to lower middle class people a lot, that would make a huge difference in the economy. Because that's where most of the consumer spending, computer spending, you know that too. Mm -hmm. Consumer spending occurs, and the lower the person's income, the more likely they are to spend everything they make each month. So if you start raising expenses for them, you really have a negative effect on the economy. But raising taxes, well, after World War II, the boom we had when the debt was, we actually have a higher debt coming up next year than we had as a percentage of GDP than we had at the the height of the post-World War II era. Yeah. But we had a huge economic boom following World War II. Yeah. It was 90% um, rate, tax rates. So I want to wrap back up and finish off that question. So we, at the end of it, you said, what would the economic damage be to the United States? And the simple answer to that, you know, we said the CARES Act introduced $3 trillion of new debt. And we saw interest rates go down not up. What that means is that there's a lot of money still sitting out there waiting to be given to the United States government for this stuff, waiting to be loaned by all over the world and by the United States. 
So 1.1 trillion, and that's a round up for what China holds. If they dumped it all on the market, it would have less effect than the CARES Act did on our debt. Three trillion in the CARES Act, a little over one trillion held by China. So we're at a state now. There was a time that China held significantly more debt for the, from the United States than they do now. But as our re- relationship has soured, they've held less and less of our debt, which makes sense, uh, which means that they're, they're stepping away. What you said earlier about they need dollars to buy things with, they restrict the use of the yuan. Uh, they don't let it leave the country, which means they have to make purchases in some other currency. And the things that they do to restrict the yuan is that they'll either buy them with dollars or sell them for dollars to bring them back out of the other economies. So they need our debt in order to protect their currency. Our currency is based on the U.S. dollar and on the taxpaying potential for the U.S. citizens. China's currency is based on that for China, but secondarily based on the value of the U.S. dollar. It's one of the things that people have complained about for a long time, but it's one of the great threat denials on the Chinese power in that they cannot attack our economy without their economy getting hurt as well. The Chinese economy is kind of a peculiar thing. The Chinese Communist Party determines what the economy is doing. And the way they do that is very neat. It's kind of like if you didn't test for COVID, the COVID numbers would go down. Um, The point is what they do is each local Chinese Communist Party official in the local community, let's say for Temple, would determine what the GDP was for Temple. And they would all add them together for the county. And the Chinese Communist Party for uh, for Bell County would determine what the GDP was for Bell County. And then it's added together by the Chinese Party for official for Texas, and then they add them all together, and that's what they say their GDP is. We do it a little more objectively, to say the least. We actually go out and count numbers that are verifiable, and we're very open about how we do it. We've got to so place what the GDP is. Right. Uh, we've got to play some commercials, but I also have two more questions that are waiting out there. Um, you get more questions than I do. I think they like you better than me. They, I guess I talk about the question as they come in, so they're like, Jeff's not even reading these. He is, but it's easier to write in one name than the other, or, or than both. Um, okay, so we're going to play some commercials. On the other side, we've got a question about, um, there's an article from the Wall Street Journal uh, that talks about how Asia uh, is dominated in their on their marketplace by individual investors, where the United States is dominated by institutional investors. And the question is, what's the difference? Why is that? So we'll give you that answer. Uh, the other question is, what are the value stocks? So we'll, we'll answer that as well. We'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. The emails to uh, email addresses to send to if you want to have a question answered are either Jeff at tpwc.com, as in the Personal Wealth Coach, Dot com or jake at tpwc.com and we'll be back on the other side with more of the personal wealth coach and, and we're back with more of the personal wealth coach with jake and mcclure well man i can you say your name again there we go jeff McClure. All right, good. Jake McClure. We're both on here together. Uh, we've got two questions uh, in the email. The first one had to do with the difference between U.S. and Chinese investment behavior. Um, do you mind if I take this part of the question and, and you Go can you can have the next question about what are value stocks? Um, uh, the the, the, we kind of have to go back to the history of the market. Um, the, the stock market as we know it kind of originated in the Netherlands uh, in the 1600s, and it was more of a commodities market. The, the one in, in, on Wall Street was originally a cattle and livestock market, and it became uh, a method of selling ownership in uh, in cattle ranches and that sort of thing, and then slowly became more about the corporations than about the 
uh, things that the corporations were selling. So at the beginning of our stock market, at the beginning of the Netherlands stock market, at the beginning of every stock market, the people that are the majority investors are the individual investors. They have money. They either go to a brokerage house or whatever, and they buy there. Uh, over time, institutions start to take over. What are institutions? Like um, in the United States, institutional investors are the biggest investors. If you're in a 401k and you're not holding individual stocks in there, and even if you are holding individual stocks in there, this may be true. You're investing through an institutional investor. If you have mutual funds in your 401k, the mutual fund company is an institutional investor. They're the ones that are going out onto the market and buying and selling stocks. And that's the majority of stock purchases and sales in the United States by a very large amount. Because most people have most of their money in their retirement plans or in some form of diversified plan because we have a mature stock market. In China, the stock markets are relatively young, as in they wouldn't have a driver's license yet. And if you look at the volatility, how, up, how much up and down they move in a given year on average, as compared to ours, what you'll discover is they're a lot more volatile. If we have a 10% up or a 10% down, they're going to have a 30 or a 40. Uh, and it's because it's being run by a lot of people that are essentially what we would call amateur investors, but they have more experience than the professionals over there at this point. Eventually, the professionals take over, and we see this in every advent of new stock markets. You see uh, the individuals out there, and over time, the government puts restrictions and protections in there to protect the ignorant investors from themselves. Uh, mutual funds are, are considered to be a better alternative by the SEC and by FINRA. These are regulatory authorities in the investment world for people that don't understand investments because you get that ability to be in a lot more than just one position. You're spread across a larger amount. Now, I should say this clearly. You still need to understand the risks. You still need to do your research before you get into this, but it's a way of uh, alleviating some of that risk. In, in China, there are a lot fewer mutual funds out there. There's a lot fewer mutual fund companies out there, and there's a lot more people. And that's an understatement. There's a lot more people, and they still have less institutional investment companies than the United States does, which has a lot less people. So it just kind of gives you an idea of why there's a difference in the trading styles in China, um, there, it's a lot easier to get uh, strange happenings causing very big movements in the market in China because the trades aren't being put through a committee of people saying, is this a good idea to make the trade now? It's one person getting home from work looking at their online statement and going, <gasps> sell or <gasps> buy. And, and so we have a couple of kind of slow down things that happen in the middle. And I think that hits th that answer fairly well. I like to add something to it. Something that's changed during the COVID crisis, during the pandemic, is I've read several reports that suggest about 20% of stock market volume, which is an astonishingly large number, has actually been generated or the buys and sells, not the ownership, but the buys and sells have actually been generated by individual investors during the pandemic, which is much, much higher than normal. Normally, it's about 5 to 10 percent. went up to 20 percent. And that explains the rise in the S&P 500. And here's the weird part. As the individuals were buying these high-tech stocks, these technology stocks and high-growth stocks that drove the S&P 500 up, they, they mostly were buying options. Well, options require institutional investors to sell the option, if the they actually call options, they're called. If the individual is buying the call option, somebody has to sell the call option in order to hedge against that call option. And it's a little complicated, but suffice to say, the important thing is an institution has to do the selling. And when the institution did the selling, they need to buy the stock to cover themselves in case the stock actually does go up. Well, there were so many call options being bought. Call option says, hey, if I'm going to buy a call option right now, on $10,000 worth of stock for $123. You can do that. 
But the stock has to rise a bunch in order for your call option to be worth anything. And you sell the call option before you have to buy the stock. You can easily make thousands of dollars or lose it all, lose your $123 on a call if you buy a call option. I say easily. People do occasionally. It's basically a form of high-stakes gambling. Yeah. Well, people were doing this, but because the fact that if the stock went up, the company, the institution on the other side has to sell the stock back to the at, at the price that they said, at a lower price. The institutional company started buying stocks to cover themselves. Well, as they were buying stocks, that caused the price of the stocks to go up, which caused the individual investors, individual investors to start buying more call options. And it was kind of a deadly circle that drove the stock market higher and higher and higher. And when everybody went back to school and back to work or started going back to work and they stopped buying call options, all of a sudden, these institutions found themselves holding large quantities of stocks that were overpriced, and they gradually have started selling them off, which is why the stock – that's one theory as to why the stock market is going down or has been going down. Right. Uh, I mean, the trigger – we think the trigger was Tesla not being added to the S&P 500. And there was all this excitement, oh, it's going to get in and it's had a year of profitability. If you look at the percentage of profitability that it had, it really only had maybe a 50-50 chance of getting in there. But a lot of people got excited about it and bid it up. And at the process, they bid up a lot of other companies that were similar. And all of the tech companies at the top got bid up and up and up and up. And then when Tesla started down, so did the rest of them. Uh, and now we've got other people that are taking profits off of this, people that bought back in March and April, are seeing the prices drop. So they're saying, well, it's still above what we bought it for. I'm going to dump it here. And that causes that downward pressure. And it's just as much logic as why it was up to begin with, which is to say almost no logic. And this relates to the next question. The reason they bought the stock was not because they looked at the price-to-earnings ratio or the underlying value or anything else, but because they say, this is a really cool stock. Uh, I think it's going to be really growing. I think it's going to be a big thing in the future, so I'm going to buy some of it. They're not looking at the fundamentals of the stock and right. saying, would I own that whole company? They're just watching what direction it's moving rather than why it's moving in that direction. As far as they're concerned, the stock market is a big uh, casino. Yeah. They want to do the best they can with it. And there's a lot of that going on. When we talk about Robin Hood and when I was just talking about China, uh, the advent of Robin Hood and a lot of the other online apps or on their phone apps that have come out that are primarily apps, they're not like a brick-and-mortar establishment, that's bringing back in the amateur investors. And we need that regularly. We need new waves of amateur investors to come into the market because they're usually younger and they need to get experience. Usually they get burned and then they go and they look for help. Um, but it causes more volatility in the middle of it. It causes the stock prices to go up and down without regard to, to the management. When people say, I know why the stock market moved today, they're either lying or there was a major speech by the Federal Reserve. Um, nobody really knows why the stock market moves. It's because there's a bunch of people making decisions individually, and each one of them influences the others. Uh, it's That's why the stock market moves. So you either buy or you sell, and sometimes when you buy or you sell, you set off a chain reaction, kind of like if you're in an auditorium and you start clapping. Now, other people start clapping, too, and sometimes it dies away quickly, and sometimes the entire auditorium claps. Why? Well, because you did. Um, so that's my kind of wrap-up on that. Um, value stocks, you want to talk about that? Well, value stocks are – it's easy to find value stocks. All you do is you look for the price-to-book, the price-to-earnings ratio. That what we would call a net worth. Right. In other words, this, the, the valuation of the company versus its price is low. Now, the problem is trying to figure out which of these companies have low prices because they're failing – and which of these companies have unusually low prices because the market is irrational? Therein is the difference between Warren Buffett and a lot of people who've lost a lot of money. Yeah. It's something called a value trap in that buying a stock because it's down doesn't necessarily mean it won't go further down. And you just keep buying the stock as it goes down until finally it goes away. I mean, Montgomery Wards is probably a prime example. It once was a prime first-class, top-of-the-line company, a member of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 
and it just kept sliding down. Enron's, yeah, uh, Enron's another example of that. I mean, it had other scandals going on, but people were buying it all throughout the scandals because it was going down. And they said, well, this is Enron. It's a big company. It's a, it's t- typically a value company. They've got enough assets. No, because the assets they had on the books were loans to themselves. Uh, and so you need to do some research here. Value traps are real. But value, a value company is basically, if you look at its net worth, you take all its debts and subtract them from the assets. And then you look at what the stock market is valuing them at. If the stock market is valuing them lower than that, that's considered a value stock. And we're about out of time. I want to talk about that more next hour, okay? Yeah. Um, If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do talk to individuals. uh, We give investment advice as a fiduciary uh, through the personal wealth coach. Uh, You can email us or call us. There's locally, the phone number is? 254-947-1111. You can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, and there's a contact us form there. Or you can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.